God, you tell us to be still before you. And so in these moments, we ask that you, through the Holy Spirit, would allow our minds to be still. Whatever that may be happening in our minds this morning, whatever we came in with, any anxieties, just worries, I pray that uh, you would still our minds to receive from you. True for our hearts as well, God. I do pray for all the students, faculty, the teachers, everyone a part of the schools that as they really get started tomorrow, I pray that you would watch over them, protect them. I know there's tons of anxiety going into this school year, just with some of my own friends. I pray, God, that you would still their hearts. And, and above all, God, I pray that you would protect them and that, God, you would use the teachers that love you, that know you, that walk with you. I pray that you would use them in a mighty way that this they would see as their mission field that you would give them opportunities to share the gospel in word and in deed. God, that this would be a year that they would look back and see your faithful hand and how you uh, opened doors of opportunity to share the gospel. We pray, God, for Brother Ronald as he's in the hospital. We pray that you would watch over him, protect him, and heal him. And now, God, we come to this point in the service where we look to your word. Your word is an errant, inspired, infallible, and given to us by you uh, to show us how to reflect your glory. So we pray that would be true for us. This is not just a book about instruction, though it's got a lot of instruction, and it is a book given to us uh, to bring us humbly before your throne, uh, to see you in all of your glory. And I pray that would be true for us this morning. So open our minds, our hearts, our ears to receive from you and what all that you would have for us. We pray this in the mighty name of Christ Jesus and all of God's people said, amen. Uh, Lauren, you walked out, but I was told to tell you happy birthday, so happy birthday. You can take that up with Jonathan later, um, but happy birthday. Let's get into God's word together this morning. We are in James chapter 4. If you have not been with us, I'm going to kind of give you a recap of the book, uh, the letter, and then kind of jump us up into speed. Here in James chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. James is writing to the, the, the Jewish people that have kind of been in dispersion. They've been scattered all over the world. And being scattered all over the world, they've lost their hope, their promise in the gospel. And they've lost a reminder of what God can and will do for them. And what God says to do for them. They've wandered from their faith. And so James is writing this letter to remind them of their faith. And as we've looked at, it's faith plus works. That's really the title of this series. What does our faith have to look like? It's going to look like or be demonstrated through our works. Not that our works brings you to faith, but our faith will be played out in how we live our lives. And so that is what James has been saying to us. He's been giving these overarching views of that, how your faith and works have to go hand in hand. In the last few weeks, he's gone from a 30,000 foot view of that into a really on-the-ground view of that. And we looked last week at what it looks like to have a worldly wisdom versus the godly wisdom. And what we really honed in on last week was this, that that has to do with relationships, not with our brain, not with our intellect, but how do we engage the world around us in relationship? Do we have godly wisdom or worldly wisdom? And James is now going to say it in a more practical way way that we must place our faith and our works together when it comes to 
relationships. I don't know about you, but I can't think of a more difficult place to put my faith in action than it has to do with relationships. I want you to think just for a moment in all the relationships you have, maybe in your parenting relationships or your spouse, your relationship with your spouse, how often would you say, man, I've got it under control when I'm at the workplace. I, I, can, I know how to really play this out, but when it comes to my marital relationship, there's a lot of conflict or there has been a lot of conflict. Am I the only one? Like I know how to do relationship with people that don't matter too much to me, but when it comes to the people that really matter to me, it's really difficult. And so James is going to say that to us. And he's going to talk in particular to the church. But the church is made up of people. The church is made up of believers. And so James is going to get back to, but he's going to borrow what his brother said. Remember what Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 22. That's the greatest commandment. Uh, Matthew 22 verse 37, he says this, and he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your what? Your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. And the greatest, this is the greatest and first commandment. You are to what? Love God. And then he says this, there's a second, just like the first. He says you are to love your neighbor as yourself. And so what Jesus is saying is, what is the greatest commandment? It has everything to do with relationship. Relationship with God, relationship with self, and relationship with other people. And he says, if you don't have a good relationship with God, you can't have a good relationship with yourself. You can't have a good relationship with yourself. You can't have a good relationship with other people. And so this morning, we're going to go back and we're going to take a test for us. If you're in a bad relationship, unhealthy relationship, you must go first to look at your relationship with God. How is your relationship with God playing out. So this morning, I'm going to look at how do we place our faith in the action when it comes to relationships. Those three places are relationship with God, self, and other. James is going to say, remember what he says in verse 1, what causes quarrels and fights among you? We're going to look at three things this morning and hit the rest of the text. Those three places of conflict are this. Conflict with others, conflict with self, and conflict with God. So this morning, I want you to take a test as I'm walking through this passage to take a test. Do you have conflict with others? Do you have conflict with self? And lastly, do you have conflict with God? That's what James is going to hone in on. Remember, this is where it's sandwiched in the passage. He just said, do you have worldly wisdom or godly wisdom when it comes to relationships? And then he asked the question here in verse 1. He's going to start with a conflict of others. You know, in preparing for this sermon, many of the scholars kept coming back to the same thing. You, you know, I don't know if you've ever thought this. Like, how many of you thought, man, it would be nice to get back to the early church, how they did it in Acts. Anyone ever had that thought, man, I wonder what the early church was like. Well, James says the early church is no different than the present church. Like, it, there's nothing that to, to get back to that was better than what we have now. Because James says, reminding them, hey, what causes fights and quarrels among you? So even the early church struggled with fights and quarrels. Now, it may not have been the color of the carpet, but there was something internal. And now James is going to reveal that to them. And so he's going to reveal it 
to us as well. So James comes out the gates and says this. He says, what causes these two things among you? Quarrels and fights. What causes this? He's going to answer that question in the second part of the text. But the first thing we have to ask us is this. Are there conflicts? Are there quarrels? Do you have quarrels and do you have fights? Those two words in the Greek mean this. Quarrels means wars. These overarching, these huge things in our lives. Like World War III kind of things. These just massive, massive fights. And then he says, if that's not true of you, do you have these little battles? That's what the word fights means. They're not wars, but they're constantly happening. They're just not as big as the wars. So do you, do I have quarrels and fights among us? What's the among us mean? That's not a video game. Some of y'all get that. That's a new game out on the uh, iPhone. It's called Among Us. I'll, I'll tell you about it later. Sorry. He's talking to the believers. And so we asked the question this morning for us. In your home, in this church, are there fights and quarrels among us? Remember what I said a few weeks ago. Remember what I said last week. We may not have external fights and quarrels among us. But do we have them internally? How many of us may never say what we're thinking out loud to another person, but we have them in our hearts? Remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter chapter, uh, 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount. Remember he says, hey, it's it's not just what you're doing externally. It's really happening what's internal in you. James will later get to that in the passage. Anyone ever like been in their house and they're fighting their spouse internally? Am I the only one? Gosh, man, it's lonely up here. Like I'm plotting out how I'm going to say what I'm going to say to Jenny. And she doesn't even know I'm plotting and planning. That's what James is talking about. And how many of us do that in the church? Like someone says something sideways to us and we, we lose ourselves in Sunday school. We're not even in Sunday school. We're talking about in our brains how we're going to get back at the person. Look, we, we might as well not sit in that pew or over there in that classroom. We might as well be over in China plotting and planning. We're nowhere in the building, which means we're not able to see, receive from God's word. Again, I hope I'm not the only one. That my mind can, can take me places that are evil and yet my actions don't follow. But what we know is this. If it stays in the mind long enough, it's going to come out of us. I'm going to get that to that in the second point. So the first thing is this. Is there in your heart and your mind this morning fights and quarrels? And I want to remind us of what Jesus says to us. And John is going to say it again. Remember, I looked at it last week, what Jesus said to us in John chapter 13, verse 35. This is a new command that I give you. Remember, there's 633 old commands. And now Jesus said, there's this new command that I'm going to give you. The new command is what? That you are to love one another. And remember what I talked about last week. What would it look like if the church, both this church and the church universal, began to love one one another. Don't you think the world would take notice? So that's what James is talking about. He's talking about it for us first. This is what John's going to say in John 
uh, John's uh, letter, 1 John chapter 2. You can turn there at this moment. John, 1 John chapter 2, 7 through 11. I'm going to look at three passages in that uh, small letter. So John says this. He's going to carry what he said in John chapter 13, but he's going to move to 1 John chapter 2, 7 through 11 first. He says this, Beloved, the church, the believer, I am not writing you a new commandment, but an old commandment that you have heard from the beginning, or you've had from when you first came to know Christ. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him. Who's the in him? Jesus. And now because you're in him and Jesus is in you, because the darkness has passed away, you are in the true light and is already shining. He's saying, if you have a relationship with God, you're in him. The old is gone. The new is here. The, the darkness that you once had has been removed from you. You now ought to live in the light. And then he says this. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light. So we know that we abide in the light of Christ. It's through how? The way that we love. And we love our brother the way that we love our sister. He says that you are to abide in the light. And in him there is no cause for stumbling. Verse 11, but over what? hates his brother or his sister, is in the darkness and walks in the darkness, and it does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Does that not sound familiar to you and me when we're caught in our heads about hating someone else? Like What, what John is talking about, what Jesus is talking about, what James is talking about, when we get inside of our heads to plot and plan the demise of other people, we are so clouded and we're now back in the dark. And what John is saying, Jesus is saying, and James is going to pick up on, we ought to walk in the light. The way we know we're walking in the light is to have the light in us, shining in us. And it starts by how you love each other. This is what John goes on in just a few other verses in verse 15 of chapter 2. James is going to pick up on this as well. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So, do you love the world and the things of the world? Because if you do, the love of God is not in you. That is so clear in Scripture. For all that is in the world, all the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father, but from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. So he's saying to us, James is going to say here in just a minute, do you have the desires of the world in you or the desires of God in you? Again, I want to say this. Desires are not a bad thing. So we can come to this passage and we can come to this passage and think desires are a bad thing. No, desires are given to us by God. Remember what the psalmist says. God will give you what? The desires of your heart. So if, if God would give us the desires of our heart, then how are desires bad if he wants to give us our desires? Here's what happens. Satan uses the God-given desires against us. Satan does, is not plotting new ways to come against you. 
what Satan is so cunning, baffling, and powerful about is having those God-given desires that you're now trying to accomplish on your own. So don't think desires are bad. Desires are good. They're a good thing from God. It's just how you go about achieving those things. He's going to talk about that here in a moment. So my hope for you, you don't leave here this morning and think, man, God said not to have desires. No, I'm saying let's funnel and move our desires in the right direction and how we get to those places. So do you have desires of the world or desires of God? John goes on to say this. For this is the message that you've heard from the beginning. That we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. And he says this, do not be surprised, brothers and sisters, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not, does not love, what? Abides in death. So do you love your brother and sister? If not, you abide in death. That's black and white in Scripture. He says this in verse 15. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Now pause and think about that statement for a moment. If you have hatred in your heart to your brother or sister, John says exactly what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. You are a murderer. You're no different than the person that you just saw on the news last night that killed people. If you have hatred in your heart. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. He's saying if you have hatred in your heart, there's no way that you can have eternal life abiding. Those two things are in conflict with one another. You, you see, when it comes to relationship with God and relationship with other people, there is no neutral. You're either moving forward or you're moving in reverse. Unlike your car, you can have neutral where you're staying put. No, there is no neutral in the economy of God. You're either moving towards him in love, or you're moving away from him in hatred towards other people. Verse 16. And then he says, do you want to know how you know what love is? He says, by this we know love. That he, Jesus, lay his, down, his life down for us. He said, you want an example of what it looks like to love other people? You are to live what? sacrificially and what john is saying what james is saying ultimately what jesus himself said is this would we the church be willing to lay our lives down for one another would we be willing as they say take one for the team and not pick and choose who we take one for if you're a part of the body of Christ, the command from God is to love one another, which says this, if the command is to love one another, then we ought all lay our lives down for one another. Is that true for us? Because if we lay our lives down for one another, then therefore there will be a place of sacrifice 
If there is sacrifice, there is no selfishness. Sacrifice and selfishness cannot coexist. Is that true for you and me? And then he says this, remember what, how Christ laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for one another. So I'd ask you this, first and foremost, is there conflict in your heart towards someone else in this place? Is there anyone in this building that claims to be a believer that you would not sacrifice your life for? And now he's going to tell us, hey, why is that and how could there be that among you? How is it that there may be a place in you that you are not willing to lay down your life for? The next thing is this. Therefore, you must have conflict within yourself. If you are unwilling to sacrifice your love and your life for someone else, James says this. Is it not this? If, you're un if you have fights and quarrels among you, he says this. Is it not this then that your passions are at war within you. Now, James is going to say three things when it comes to a conflict with self. I want you to take the test. Conflict with self. Do you have uncontrolled passions? Do you have unfulfilled desires? And do you have selfish desires? So let's look at those three things together. He says this in the next verse. Is it not that you have these passions that wage war within you? Those are uncontrolled passions are there any passions in your life that are uncontrolled that have no boundaries that just roam to and fro there's no corralling them the word passion here in this text is the very word that we get the word hedonism from and so is there, is there any places in your soul this morning that are uncontrolled Remember what I said just a few moments ago. Passions in and of themselves are not a bad thing. It's uncontrolled passions that become a dangerous thing. Remember the verse. God gives us desires of our heart. When what? We delight ourselves in Him. So if we delight ourselves in Him, our delight in Him is what gives us the control over our passions. Then if we delight ourselves in Him, then we know where our passions ought to be headed towards. And there's boundaries are guardrails for our passions they can't get too far left or too far right you, you see in a marriage you ought to have sexual passion i get no amen oh my word uh, right so god's given us the passion to have sexual desires for our spouse but what does the world say have those passions wherever and with whomever you please You see, but if I delight myself in the Lord and I delight myself in God's word, whether single or married, then my sexual passions have guardrails. They're going to be pointed in the right direction to the right and appropriate person. And on and on we could go. See, I would imagine all the passions that are uncontrolled in your life are not bad passions. They just don't have guardrails. And he's saying, if you have uncontrolled passions in your life, then those uncontrolled passions will not be what? They won't have fulfillment. 
That's what he says next in the passage. He says, you desire and you do not have. Therefore, because you desire and you do not have, you murder, you covet and cannot obtain. So you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrongly to spend it on your own passions. So he says this, the next to this, you have these uncontrolled passions that now become these unfulfilled desires. And what James is saying to us is this. If you have these uncontrolled passions, unfulfilled desires, what will you do to fulfill your passions? You'll do whatever. And at the end of the day, one one time with one person sexually is not going to be enough for you. So now you're going to have to fill it with even more. And on and on I could go when it comes to money, your job, your, your, like your fame, whatever it is. Like there's this thing in you that's going uncontrolled, but it's never going to be fulfilled enough. They say in the rooms of AA, one drink is too many and a thousand's not enough. I've never met a drug addict who goes right back to the same place where they started their drug addiction. Why? Because they're always trying to achieve the first high. The first high is the best high. That can be true of anything and everything. I mean, I can't, I'll never forget at 16 years old that first paycheck. I was a bag boy at Kroger. You know how much money I made an hour? It wasn't much. But I remember getting that paycheck and the fulfillment of that paycheck was like, wow. And I remember growing up desiring more and more of that paycheck. And the more money I got wasn't enough. Again, if you have uncontrolled passions, you will eventually have unfulfilled passions and desires. And I promise this, you will do whatever it takes to make sure that is fulfilled. But here's the lie of Satan. He always is, always promises and underdelivers. He promises us this one thing. We go and get it, but it's never satisfying, is it? And that is what James is saying. And then he says this, if that's true in your life, you will go kill somebody. Because it starts in the mind. And then it comes out through action. Then he says the next thing. If you have uncontrolled passions, unfulfilled passions, then you eventually have selfish desires. You will go get yours at any cost despite relationship of other people. That's what he says in the text. He says this. You do not have because you do not ask. He says, let me remind you of how you're even asking. You ask and do not receive. How come? Because you ask wrongly. And how are you asking wrongly? Because you're asking from God to give you your unfulfilled passions so that what? You can go spend it more on your passions. So now he's saying to us, now you have selfish passions And because you have selfish passions, those won't be fulfilled either. And the other part is this. God knows your heart. 
So God's not going to give you the things of your heart to go spend it on your own passions. Why? Not because God's a killjoy, but because God loves you more than you love yourself. And God knows if he gives you the passions of your heart that aren't of him, you're going to be up a train wreck. And so we can come to God and be bitter at God that God's not giving us these desires of our heart, but it's because either A, we're not aligning ourselves with God, or God knows our heart or where we're going to end up. So when you're not getting the desires of your heart fulfilled, it may not be that you're in sin. It may be that God knows something about you that you do not know about yourself. And so not giving you the passions is a way of protecting you. And how bitter do we get towards God, or am I the only one? God, how could you? Why would you? Anyone ever prayed the prayer, God, if you just give me more money, I'll tithe more. Am I the only one? If you just gave me more, I'd give more. And God's like, that, that's such a lie. I'm not going to do that to you, to me. So before we move to the last one, this morning in your life, are there any uncontrolled passions that are leading you to have unfulfilled desires? And the next is this, do you have selfish desires? James then goes, hey, if you're not having conflict with others, or conflict with self, I promise this, you're going to have conflict with God. He says in verse 4, 5, and 6, he says this, therefore, whoever wishes, this is in verse 4, you adulterous people. I mean, he comes out the gate. Again, adulterous people, he's not talking about the, the unbeliever. He's talking to the believer. He says, you adulterous people, you have a problem with your relationship with God because you have all these desires that go unfilled, you're selfish about them, and you fight and quarrel among you. And so he's saying, if all those are things are happening, you are an adulterous people. You have an idol in your life that you love the things of God rather than the God that gives you the things, you adulterous people. This is us, the believer, not the unbeliever. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be friends of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is not the purpose of the scripture that says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Three things when it comes to our conflict with God. We have a hatred, if we're honest, with God. That's what it means when it says you adulterous people. He's not saying in our lives, in our sexual behavior. He's not talking about sexual behavior in that word adultery. What he's referring back to is the Old Testament. Remember what the Old Testament and the fulfillment of the New Testament is about, is that there is this love relationship with God, the husband, with the people of God, the bride. And he says he's sacrificed his life to be in relationship with us. And so he says throughout the Old and New Testament, the relationship with God and his people ought to look like a marriage. 
And what he's now saying, James is saying, you adulterous people, you're going outside of your marriage for fulfillment. And so if you're going outside of your relationship with God to fulfill your desires, then you are an an idolater, which means you are an adulteress. And so therefore, it would really be true. We don't really love God. Because God himself, through Jesus, says this, you can't love me and have other masters. You cannot serve both. You'll serve one or the other. Because it'd be real easy for us to be said, yeah, but I, I really love God. And Jesus is like, no, it's impossible. He says this, this is how you know if you're in a adult, an adulterous relationship. Do you want to be friends with the world? Do you want to be friends of the things of the world? Which would look like this. When it comes to what makes you laugh, you laugh at what the world laughs at. When it comes to the pleasures, do you have pleasure in what the world has pleasure in? You cannot serve and have both. Which then would say if you have hatred towards God, then you would also have this place of a lack of belief in God's word. That's what he says next in the text. Remember, he says, hey, do you not suppose what God's word says? What does God's word say? This is one of the most confusing verses in the book of James, if not in the entire New Testament. And I won't get into all of that. But there's two places of, of thought here. Is James talking about this place of the, the spirit is jealous? Or is he talking about man being jealous of the world? Either one you can go with. I'm going to go with this one, that what the Spirit of God has placed in you, the Spirit of God has jealousy when you go after the things of the world. We have a jealous God because God loves us so much. And so when we're choosing things other than God, don't you think God would be jealous? If it goes back to we're an adulterous people. Now, if you went and got married... You went on your honeymoon and you came home and you said to your spouse, hey, I'm going to go have a date with my ex-girlfriend. You'd be like, wait, that, that's a little bit off. I don't think you're in a good marriage at that point, would you? Or you come home from your honeymoon and you're like, hey, I'm going to go have coffee with so-and-so. That's probably not going to go over well. But that's what James is saying. You're married to God, but you're having relationship with the world. Which says then you don't really believe what God's word says. God's word says you cannot have relationship with the world. That is what confession is about. That we are going to be moving towards the world. We're going to come to relationship with God. The Holy Spirit's going to be planted in us. And then we say we want nothing to do with the world and we go the other direction. But how many of us continue to walk in the same direction with the world even after conversion? And we wonder why these passion and desires are so in us. Because we don't trust in God's holy word. Which then moves us to the last point. If you have a hatred towards God and you don't believe God's word, then he says this. He points it out. It all stems from one word. A lack of humility. 
The opposite of humility is what? Pride. Is that not what he says in the text? Therefore, God opposes the proud, the pride, but gives grace to the humble. You either have pride or you're humble. He says to us, if you have this conflict with God, it's because you have this pride in your life towards God. Is that not the the beginning of sin in the book of Genesis? Remember what Satan said to Adam and Eve. Pride says this, you can become like God and you will be like God. Which means if I become like God, then I don't what? I don't need God. And so James is getting all the way back to you have a hatred towards God because you don't believe in God's word because you have a lack of who you know to be true about yourself. You are not God. I am not God. I'm a human. If I'm human, I'm in need of God. Therefore, my need of God brings me to a place of humility, not pride. That's why James says he borrows other text when he says this God opposes the proud because why God will have no other gods before him so he's going to oppose that why because he knows that's harmful to you it's not simply that you're robbing him of his glory he knows if you try to become like him you're going to harm yourself So he's wanting you to stay in this posture of humility. That's why it says God gives what? Grace to the humble. And how do we get to a place of grace? He says it in the text. And we'll close it with this way of application. But God gives more grace. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. How do we receive grace? grace this morning is through one word and one word only confession the confession is i am not like god and if i am not like god then i must trust god will give me the desires and the passions of my heart and therefore i must submit myself over to god is what the psalmist says i must delight myself in the lord so i'd say to you this morning there's fights and quarrels among you. I would assure you of this. It's because you're not delighting yourself in the Lord. He gives you exactly what you need, how much you need, and when you need it. If you have any lack of trust in that, then you will go and be prideful and go after it and go find it however it seems right to you. And James is plural. is He's begging you of this that's why i believe the next text and we'll get this this next week he says this what in verse seven submit yourselves over to who the lord so that you resist the evil one are you submitting your will and your life and your desires over to god this morning let us pray